Okay, a little time for Q, no A. All right. And, and folks, if you, if you have somebody waiting for you, if you weren't sure how long you would go tonight, and you're just waiting for or something, then uh, feel free to slip out, and then we'll have a little freedom then for those that can stay to deal with some of the questions, and we'll keep, uh, keep Dr. Walker <laughs> At least we didn't have too many people leave in the middle of the, the message. That was, that was good. Yes. That's a great question, and here's how I would like to uh, deal with that. I think that, uh, oh, yes, yes, thank you. What, what do I think about the miracles, and we can add healings and things like this that are happening outside of the United States? I think a, a fundamental issue that is important to consider is it's not that God does not do miracles today. It's not that God does not heal today. It's rather that cessationists believe that God does not invest these powers in individuals who can permanently exercise them. And um, I think of this, I'm I'm coming around to your question, but this is important to to think about, that uh, Spurgeon was a cessationist. And one Sunday morning when he was preaching at his church in London, he got the very strong impression from the Holy Spirit that a man who had just slipped into the, the uh, audience had stolen from ju- some jewelry from a, a store a few doors down. And he addressed the man from the pulpit. And he said, sir, you just stole jewelry from this store. You need to get up, leave, take it back, and repent of your sins. And then in his diary that night, he said, where in the world did that come from? And... Uh, Spurgeon, who was a cessationist, a cessationist, had to become a soft cessationist after that. It's not that that happened ever again. It might have happened again, but I know the one incident with him. And I've had to become a soft cessationist, too. Uh, I, I think that God can, can use an individual to prophesy and may even do so today. Uh, and, and I'm very convinced that God uses people who have the gift of faith Uh, to heal others. Uh, And that is not the same thing as being a faith healer. Uh, A young man in my high school group when I was a youth pastor uh, got on the back of a motorcycle with a friend, and the friend had a helmet on. This fellow didn't, and they got in an accident, and he was in a coma for six months. They didn't think he was going to survive. And so another friend of mine and I, we we were in college at the time, we got together the night before Easter, and he and I stayed up all night praying for this young man. This is six months he's been in a coma. The next morning, Easter morning, he woke up. Now, I'd call that a miracle. And he's functioning today. He's, he's, he he uh, was an incredible evangelist, and uh, he's, he's got a ministry today, I understand. So... I'd say that was a miracle. Does that mean I had the gift of healing? No. I didn't even see him in the hospital. Did I have the gift of faith? Well, I certainly believe that God could do it, and I asked him to do it. Uh, And so, now, 
I'm coming back around to what's happening outside the United States. This kind of thing, I think, happens a lot. It happens in those countries where the basic issue is not, is Christianity true? But it happens in those countries where the basic question is, can your God beat up my gods? And I've seen that uh, several times. Um, where it's, it's, a, it's a power struggle, and, and your God better be powerful enough. If we go in into various situations and assume that God is not going to act and not going to do the miraculous, I think we're in trouble. And so I have no qualms uh, with saying, no problem with saying, yes, God performs miracles, and yes, God heals, and he heals when somebody lays hands on somebody if that person doesn't claim that God's necessarily going to do it through them. And so that's what I see. I see it as a qualitative distinction between what happened in the New Testament and what happens today. So, uh, so many of my charismatic friends assume that all cessationists think God doesn't do miracles. Well, the greatest miracle is raising somebody from the dead, and raising somebody from the spiritual dead is a greater miracle than raising somebody from the physical dead, except, of course, for raising Jesus from the dead. And uh, that miracle we see every day. So... That's how I would answer that question. And so I'm, I'm comfortable with the idea that God does those things throughout the world. And one of the problems in the United States and in Western civilization is uh, I think we have focused more on cognitive things because of modernism and the Cartesian revolution and those kinds of things where everything is a mind game rather than uh, a holistic view of things. Okay. Yes. Right, I said, which is your reasonable service. I didn't add worship, and I called it reasonable instead of uh, spiritual. Well, I'm wondering about that Greek phrase, I guess. It's two words in Greek. It's logikos and latria, but you don't need to know that. Um, it won't show up on the quiz. But um, the word logikos is the word, well, I guess you do need to know it. Uh, the word logikos can either mean reasonable or spiritual. We get the word logical uh, from it, and I take it that in that context, it's more focusing on this is what is reasonable. This is what would be expected of somebody in light of what I just told you, how much God has done for you, that it's reasonable for you to sacrifice your bodies in the cause of Christ. And uh, the word latria is the word that is service and worship, but the kind of worship it is is not the, the worship that is usually used of doing um, uh, verbal worship or even making sacrifices of animals. It was rather service to the Lord uh, of activity. So I think to translate it as reasonable service makes uh, perfectly good sense. I understand why the New American Standard does it. It's, it's still, it's not something I'm absolutely decided on. I'm, I've been leaning in this direction for many years, but uh, thank you for that question. I appreciate that, and I hope everybody else understood what I said. So, <laughs> yes, ma'am. What is your take on the 
Well, uh, there are texts that are outside of the Bible written between the Testaments that tell us about a lot of these things that the Jews believed in. Whether there actually is a third heaven or not, that's the terminology that Paul uses to describe what was seen. And uh, basically, the third heaven would be the place where God resides. The first heaven would be the physical atmosphere, and the second heaven is where you've got uh, demons and others, and those who cannot get into the third heaven also reside. So um, uh, that's, uh, I think that's pretty normative understanding of what the third heaven is. The third heaven is the highest heaven where God actually has his throne. And, and yet we know that Satan has access to God up there because he's constantly accusing us and Jesus Christ is constantly def- defending us before the throne. So at this stage in uh, salvation history, the devil still has access to it, but that's not going to be forever. Yes. What no the second one Uh and it's not marked. Oh my goodness. You know what I do with my students who catch me in making a mistake? You're the first person to point this out in eight years of me teaching Romans. I give, I give, them, I give them an A-plus for the day. And so students, they're just trying to figure out, did you make a mistake? And so you found it. Well, thank you. No, that, it deserves to go there. Yes. In other words, when they're speaking in tongues in private. You know, I've, I've wrestled with that in a number of different ways. Uh, and on the one hand, I would say when you look at 1 Corinthians 14, Paul says, I would rather prophesy one word than, than speak in tongues a thousand words. You know, it makes that kind of a comparison to say that that's not going to profit others. It's what, basically what he's arguing is what is of benefit to the body of Christ is important. And he goes on and he says uh, that prophecy builds up the church, but speaking in tongues builds up oneself. And that's a, it's a neutral term that can be used negatively or positively. Uh, I, I take it when Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians 14 and says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than you all. I, I, my view is that what he is actually saying is, because this was a huge problem in Corinth. Uh, how is it possible for Paul to say, I speak in tongues more than all of you, when they were speaking in tongues a lot? 
Uh, and he doesn't say more than each of you, but all of you, which uh, at least uh, on the surface looks like he's saying collectively more than all of you. He may be just saying more than each one of you, though. I take it that what Paul is, is saying is, and this becomes a, a, a very important model for us, he is saying that if I speak in tongues at all, it's more than all of you are doing because what you're doing is not legitimate. Now, the reason I think that's important is because 1 Corinthians 14 has become a model for me in how to deal with my charismatic friends. I don't say, I forbid you to speak in tongues, which is exactly what Paul says, don't say. And instead, what tongues needs to be uh, handled with is it needs to be uh, regulated, which is exactly what Paul does, takes all the mystery out of it. It's not nearly as exciting and frothy after a while if you do that. I've been in churches where uh, the song leader says, okay, in the second uh, uh, verse, I want you to sing it in your favorite tongue. And that's when I was a charismatic. And I go, Gee, even then I thought that was kind of bizarre. But um, I'd also say that uh, Paul doesn't just regulate it, but he also prioritizes things with that love chapter right in the middle. And when you put all of that together, I think he is de-emphasizing uh, this particular thing in, in some significant ways. And my sense is that the speaking in tongues, the authentic spiritual gift had already ceased, and, or it was definitely on its way out. And even the gift of healing was on its way out because in A.D. 61, Paul is writing to the Philippians who had sent Epaphroditus to him. They basically sent Epaphroditus to Paul and they wanted Paul to send Timothy back to him. They said, we're going to make a fair exchange. Frankly, we don't like Epaphroditus very much, but we do like Timothy. He's a slick guy and we want him to come. And Paul sends Epaphroditus back to them, but he's building Epaphroditus up in their eyes. And Philippians chapter 2 is all about what it means to be a servant with Jesus Christ being the great servant. But uh, what Paul does in that chapter is talks about how Epaphroditus came near to death and that Paul prayed for him, and uh, it looks as if he's saying, and he prayed for him for a long time, lest he have grief upon grief. If Paul was a healer, why didn't he just heal him? Why, why was this something that even lasted any longer than a few moments? Why does he tell Timothy, take a little wine for your stomach's sake? when he could have sent a handkerchief, as happened in the book of Acts, to heal people. You know, stomach ailment, you know, uh, this will solve the problem. So uh, these gifts, I think, are on their way out, even in the apostolic age. Now, what is that person doing? There are some who are going to say, well, what they're doing is something that's uh, sponsored by the devil. Uh, that may be the case in some instances, that's certainly not my default position. And I think there may be a value in what they're doing, even if it is not legitimate speaking in tongues. Because what they are doing, and it's kind of a circuitous route to get here, but here, try to track with me on this. What they are doing is when they are basically letting go of their conscious control of their lives, is they are admitting, I'm not in control. And this is one of the things that I've learned from charismatics is they know that they're not in control, that God is bigger than they are. 
And those are some lessons that cessationists can learn too. A very good friend of mine who uh, went through Dallas Seminary a few years ahead of me and was an associate pastor at a, at a cessationist church for many years, later became a charismatic, and he's, he's just one of the brightest guys I've ever known. And um, he basically said that uh, becoming a charismatic allowed him to recognize that he was not in control, and as a cessationist, everything in his life was to be in control. And, you know, basically in life we are in a free fall. We're, we're trusting God to take care of us. And we have the, um, the aura of being in control when any one of us can get hit by a drunk driver tonight going home. Trees could fall down. You know, you could get cancer. This. We, we're, we're very weak people that are not in control, and we need to get in the position of recognizing that God is the only sovereign in the universe. And so those who sometimes have tongue speaking as a, a closet prayer language may be doing something that is cathartic for them and really helpful for them spiritually, even though that particular event is not. It's just an attitude of I'm not in control kind of a, a thing. So that's part of how I would deal with it. There's other ways in which I deal with it too, but those are at least the basic contours. So. Yes? Mm-hmm. It's not the close of the canon. It's not the conclusion of the New Testament. It's also what's used in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, that when the perfect comes, that which is partial will be done away. Paul there says, uh, now we know in part and we prophesy in part. Uh, And he says, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. And um, there are some who would say, well, when the perfect comes, that means the close of the canon. I'd say that is a virtually impossible view. And the reason is because it presupposes that not only that Paul knew that he was writing Scripture, but that he knew that others were writing Scripture, and that he knew that the New Testament would be concluded before Jesus returned. All three things, I'd say, are not true. Uh, Paul, if Paul, especially in 1 Corinthians, we could make a strong case that he did not know he was writing Scripture. Uh, he says in chapter 1, I, I thank my God that I did not baptize uh, any of you except Crispus and God. Oh, yeah, and a couple other guys. And, you know, and, and, and I, I'm thinking to myself, if Paul knew he was writing Scripture, he'd say, oh, darn. Uh, Tychicus, grab another papyrus leaf. We've got to start over again, you know. <laughs> uh, and so uh, it just doesn't, it doesn't look to me as if he knows that that's what he's doing. In chapter 7, he says, not the Lord, but I say this, not I, but the Lord. He's making a distinction between his own opinion and the Lord's. And if he knew he was writing Scripture, I wonder if he would have worded it quite like that. So uh, the early church also was in that same position, that in the uh, second century, when you start getting Christians to understand that the New Testament actually is Scripture. And, And remember this, no Scripture had been written for 400 years until we start getting the New Testament books written. After Malachi died, that's it. So they're not thinking, oh yeah, these disciples of Jesus, they're going to be uh, adding to uh, the sacred books. That wasn't uh, something on their their mental list for some time. In the first half of the second century, almost never is the New Testament called Scripture, maybe twice. 
The second half, now it starts getting called that a lot. There's an increasing canon consciousness that happens in the second century and beyond. And where people are beginning to say, you know what, I think what Jesus Christ did was he changed everything, including Scripture is being written again today. But that wasn't their first thought. So for Paul to have thought along those lines seems uh, very strange. And I'd say what he's saying in 1 Corinthians 13 is the perfect comes. When that comes, he's talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ. So does that mean that prophecy is going to last until the second coming of Christ? Well, I would also argue that from Paul's perspective, he does not think of the New Testament at all as getting closed. He doesn't, he doesn't think of any apostles or all the apostles as dying off before Jesus comes. We know that from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, which he wrote in A.D. 49, so four years before he wrote 1 Corinthians. He says that we who are alive and remain at the coming of the Lord, well, that we would include him. Now, it's a prophecy, but it's a prophecy where he also put himself in that position of being alive. That was his hope. That was not necessarily part of the prophecy. And I take it that the same thing is happening in 1 Corinthians 13, so that in Paul's mind, the second coming of Christ is what's going to happen before the last apostle dies off. But if the apostles die, then things have changed. So it's, it's uh, an interesting passage to deal with. I'd love it if it were the close of the canon, man, the case is closed, but it, it, it isn't. Let's take one last question. You guys have been great tonight just to sit through all this. Or no last questions, that's fine too. <laughs> All right, let's close in prayer, shall we? Father, you are good to us, not just to us, but to other believers in Jesus Christ who don't have all the same values that we have. In fact, there's no two of us in this room with the same values, the same beliefs exactly. Help us to learn to love the brothers and sisters in Christ. Help us to seek unity and help us to spread the gospel as we serve our Lord Jesus Christ completely with our mind, with our hearts, with our bodies.